Okay, so 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 27. This is going to be our third study through the book of 1 John. And tonight we are going to almost finish chapter 2. There's kind of an awkward uh, chapter break after verse 29. So we're going to roll 28 and 29 into chapter 3 for next week. So feel free to read ahead. So up to date so far, John has opened the letter by identifying himself as one who has known Christ from the beginning, since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he's kind of laid those credentials down because as we saw through chapter 1 and uh, chapter, beginning of chapter 2, he's, he's identified a lot of inconsistency. He's talking about people who say that they are in the truth or say they know God, but their lives are totally disconnected from obedience to the Lord, and he's talked about the importance of keeping God's commandments. And those can be uh, actually some rather intimidating passages, especially if uh, you're going through a time of fear or insecurity in your life, where it's like, see, it says that a true believer keeps his commandments, and how do I know if I'm keeping them or not? And we can start to freak out, which is funny, because we see (laughs) uh, from verse 12 down to verse 14, that's the opposite of why John wrote He says, I'm not writing to you to rebuke you. I'm writing to you because you do know the truth, because you do know the Father. You are strong. You have overcome the wicked one. So uh, he's laid that down, and he's going to do that a little more going into verse 17. And then he's going to start to address why he's been bringing up these these people that live in consistent lives. And he's going to talk about them using some pretty strong languages. uh, language, I should say, to to describe these people. And it's if you're in that category, this is a rough section for you. But for us, we're going to see so many encouraging things that John says uh, that reminds us of who we are in Jesus Christ, reminds us that the spirit dwells within us to keep us from sin and error. Because John is saying people who follow Jesus, who believe in God, they don't sin. They don't walk in darkness. They don't hate their brethren. And we say, how am I supposed to do all that? Well, he's going to go in and say, because you already have the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your life. So when we can remember what it means to follow Christ, to walk in the Spirit, as Paul would say, uh, we can be free from the world, as he's going to say, and we're going to be able to endure all things and every attack that's going to come against the church. And he is going to talk about those who come from within and, you could say, without to threaten the gospel. So tonight, the title is called Against Antichrists. And I did make that word plural on purpose, against antichrists. So we're going to start here with verses 15 through 17. Now, 15 through 17, I could teach just on these verses. (laughs) They're fabulous. I have taught on just these verses before. Uh, It's really one of the most awesome passages we get out of this book. Um, It's connected to what we just said, and it's going to be connected to what we say after, but um, we're not going to spend as much time as I would like on this, but there are some really cool things for us to pull out of it. So let's read verses 15 through 17 of 1 John chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. There's something to be underlined. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever great section, really intense section in a, in a way, very clear call to separation. But I mean, don't love the world. He's just affirmed the faith of the readers, right? He just went through that big, long thing. The word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil one. You are strong. 
And he's about to draw a distinction between people like that and these false brethren who he's going to call antichrists. And so this here in verses 15 through 17 is a commandment to maintain that distinction. He's saying, this is who you are. I'm about to talk about who they are. And in the middle of that, he's going to say, you need to keep the distinction distinct. (laughs) You need to stay different. Now, on the surface, this seems like a kind of strange command, especially if you're familiar with the Bible, which most of you would be. It says, do not love the world. Aren't we supposed to love the world? (laughs) Didn't it say in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Uh, Are we not supposed to love the people who are lost? Are we not supposed to love those who are without Jesus? Didn't Jesus say to love your enemies? Yes, of course. So what is he saying here? Well, there's actually two differences. And we're going to compare this to John 3.16 where it says, God so loved the world. And he says here, do not love the world. There's two differences. He's using the word love differently and he's using the word world differently. And this isn't a fancy Greek thing. This is just how we use words. So when he says, do not love the world, Jesus loved the world out of compassion. John is warning us against loving the world in a sense of participation. Jesus loved the world because he recognized how far from him it was, how lost they were, and it motivated him to do something about it. He's warning us here against the kind of love that says, I love being in the world, I love everything it has to offer, and I want to be just like them. So love of compassion, not of participation. And then a different way he uses the word world. Jesus loved the world as you think of it as a place full of lost souls. John is warning us against loving the world, and he defines the world as the godless structure of the devil's domain. You know, the devil is called the god of this age, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And the world, as he means it here, meaning the systems and the governments and the, uh, the ideologies and the pressures and persecutions and idolatries and false religions that are in the world. It's the domain of Satan. And what he's saying is, don't want to be a participant in that. Don't want to be like everybody else. You can consider this how the Lord taught Israel to maintain their distinction from the world. Now, he says, do not be like the Gentiles, right? Don't be like the other nations. They came and they said, we want a king just like all the other nations. And God was angry at them for it. You don't want to be like them, but they took that so far that they hated the rest of the world, and they completely withdrew, and they hated the Gentiles, and they hated the Samaritans, and Jesus had to come in and bust all that up. Um, But in the same way, we are commanded to maintain a distinction between us as believers and the rest of the world. 2 Corinthians 6.17, here Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, so this applies old and new. It says, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. That passage is when Paul is talking about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Go out from among them and be separate. Be different, you could say. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. So, We're not to be active, willing participants in the sinful structures of the world. The ideas, the morals, the priorities of those who are apart from Jesus Christ. And so what defines the world? Well, he gives that to us. Because he said, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what's he talking about? He says three things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And they translate uh, the Greek word epithumia, 
they translate that as uh, as desires. I still like the old-fashioned word lust there. Um, we tend to think of lust and associate that word especially with sexual lust, uh, which is why they went with desires because it is broader than that. But I, I do like the punch that comes from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So what is desire or lust as he's describing it here? Again, it's the Greek word epithumia. This is a an illicit desire, a desire that you should not have. A lot of times it's a good desire that has gone out of control. And he uses this word twice here. So he's talking about the lust or the desires of the flesh. What is that? Well, anytime in the New Testament, when it's using flesh in this moral context, like not when it's saying Christ took on flesh, but when it refers to it in this way, when Paul talks about the flesh and the spirit warring against one another, it's, it's talking about your bodily urges that have spun out of control. The things that you desire in your body, in your flesh, right? The word there is just carne, right? In Latin, which is where we get the word for carnivore, meat, right? Just your body, your physical body. Now, the body is not evil. The body itself is not evil. That was a problem that the church had for a long time where uh, they wanted to try and punish their bodies for making them want to sin. But what, what he's talking about here is your desires of your flesh that are good that get out of control. A great example is hunger. You need to eat. When your body starts to, your stomach starts to grumble and your body's like, okay, it's, uh, it's time to eat. That's a good thing. You are supposed to want to eat, you know, and when that gets out of whack or when we resist that desire too much, bad things can start to happen and you have eating disorders and everything else. But on the other side of that, you have gluttony where you are owned by your hunger. And I'm talking about physical hunger for food here. Uh, the Bible talks in places about people whose God is their belly. The idea is that everything that they do is to fulfill what they want. You know, uh, I mean, this is a this is a, a sin in the United States of America because we have so much that we we eat to excess. Uh, and I'm not even so much talking about obesity or weight here. I'm talking about how we structure everything. All of our meals are structured around satisfying us, right? And we, we go out of, out of our way to make sure that our meals are not just satisfying our hunger, but it's like entertainment. <laughs> and I am very guilty of this because, I mean, I get grumpy when I don't, not forget having food when I don't have good food. Um, and that's, you know, that's the way it is. And I've got to work on that. And the Lord is working with me on it. But, you know, uh, you can start to view your food as entertainment. Like if you're like, I, I'm, I'm hungry, but if it's not good, I just don't want to eat. Well, then you're just, you've begun to worship your desire. And of course, that can spin out of control and, uh, you know, lead to health issues as well. But I, this can apply to other things too. And I wanted to use that because we always use sex as the obvious example. But same thing, your sexual drive is a good thing. God gave that to you. But when it spins out of control, you get sexual immorality. Uh, you could add sleep to that. I mean, the desire to sleep is a good thing. You know, I, I when I was a younger man, I had a very hard time with how much I loved to sleep. Like, there's no better feeling in the world than waking up and then going back to sleep. <laughs> like, when you wake up and you've got 20 minutes left before you have to get up. I woke up this morning, and I had, I had some minutes before uh, my alarm was set to go off, and I rolled right back up in that blanket, and I'm like, I'm not getting up. But, and, you know, I, that became a problem where I was chronically late for things, 
and I was oversleeping and I would wake up and I wouldn't have enough time to do a good job on the things I was supposed to be doing, uh, rushing assignments in school, which is one thing, but I mean, I was in Bible college and I was rushing assignments, right? So you, you'd think there'd be a little more diligence there. What, I, what I've actually come to realize is as I've gotten older is I, I don't give myself enough sleep anymore, you know, and I, this is not exactly the, the lust of the flesh there, but it's, a, it's an over denial and you're still not taking care of yourself. And that's more probably pride of life, which we'll get to in a minute. But any of these things, hunger, sex, sleep, any physical desire that gets out of whack and out of proportion, that's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, the desire of the eyes, this is a desire for possessions, to have what you do not have in a materialistic greed. The drive to have more and more and the refusal to be satisfied. That's really what it is. is it's not just having things, you know, and there, there's, there's a place for, especially I think in, in young men where you're, you are at a time in your life where you're driven and you want to succeed and you want to accomplish things. And, you know, for me, you know, I'm not a, I'm not really a, a things type person. Like I don't really care to have a lot of stuff, but in my mind, I'm like, we're chasing after getting the house. We're chasing after, you know, uh, having the, the car, not because I'm like, I have to have the nice things, but because I want to be able to take care of my family. That's a good desire, but it comes to the point where you define yourself by the things that you own or the things that you want. So, uh, you know, you, you see people who come into money and it's never enough, always pushing for more, always pushing to gain and add to what they have. And uh, it, it manifests itself in a lack of generosity as well. I think, uh, you know, the classic literature example is Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Had everything, had way more money than everybody else, didn't pay his employees well, and lived like a pauper. <laughs> like he ate gruel every day for breakfast and for dinner and for lunch. And he lived in this big house, but he only ever used one room. And he was this old man. Everybody hated him. He had nothing, but he was so avaricious that he, he couldn't even enjoy what had been given to him. That's the lust of the eyes. And here's the thing. The lust of the eyes can go beyond just possessions. It can go to, uh, I, I mean, think of the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or thy neighbor's donkey or whatever it is. Things that you don't have that you allow to dissatisfy your spirit. And this is the thing. People who are poor or don't have money can be even more guilty of this than people who are rich and do have money. It's when you are so obsessed in your mind, having and gaining occupies every waking thought and it, you, it builds resentment that you don't have what they have and you start comparing yourself and comparing what they have with what you have and everything you do is about gaining and increasing and adding to what you have instead of being satisfied. The Bible comes out and says, look, all these things come from the Lord. So if you're poor, rejoice that you've already, it says rejoice in your humiliation. Rejoice that you don't have the temptation that rich folks do. And he says, and if you're rich, rejoice that God has blessed you and don't be tight-fisted. And, and I think it's 1 Timothy. He says, command those who are rich uh, to share with others, but to tell them that God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So as believers, you know, we, we don't want to be obsessed with prosperity and gaining and adding, and God wants you to be you know, so rich and wealthy. It's, that's not what the word says. But nor do we want to be the people who are always ragging and hating on those who are rich and have more because that's not what Jesus did. You know, I, we miss that sometimes. Jesus, he went to the poor and the downtrodden and destitute. Yeah, he did. You know who else he went to? Zacchaeus. He went to Jairus. 
He went to Matthew. He went to the oppressors. <laughs> he didn't just go to the oppressed. He went to the oppressors, and they hated him for that. What are you going to Zacchaeus' house for? He's ripped everybody off. And he's like, because he needs salvation. So lust of the eyes. Don't get caught up in that. And the third thing is the pride of life. The Greek word for pride is alaxenea, and this is really, it's not just pride. Like In English, when we say pride, there, there can be a good sense of that, like taking pride in what you do. This here, though, is like boasting, arrogance, right? Strutting around pride of life, the desire to have position, to have control or influence or power. It's self-aggrandizing. It's selfish ambition. The Bible does make a difference, by the way, between ambition and selfish ambition. This is someone who is, everything is about gaining power and control, about getting that next position. Maybe you've worked with people like this, who they'll do anything. doesn't matter how small the pyramid is. <laughs> they want to be at the top, and they're willing to do anything to get there. Have you ever had a boss who has the tiniest ounce of power, like a shift leader? And like they use that to lord it over you. Like they have the, just like an inch's worth of power and they let that go to their head. You know, and it's, it, we always say, oh, it's the big, you know, CEOs and presidents and dictators who are so prideful. Yes, that's true. But in my experience, it's the people who just have a little taste of it. Right. I have control over your schedule. That's all I have. But I'm going to milk that for everything that it's worth. You guys are all snickering because, you know, it's true. You know, those people, you know, and. You know, the, the boss who just, you know, you, you, you're a, a company of like six people, but he, he acts like he's, you know, the CEO of some multi-million dollar corporation and struts around prideful, arrogant, right? And again, this can be whether or not you actually achieve it. It can be the, the pride in your heart of wanting more, wanting power and wanting control. Not that says, you know, not, not somebody who goes, I think I should run for office because I really think... I'm, I'm capable. I don't think there's a lot of good people that are doing this right now. I think I can do some good, okay? It's a person who says, well, why do you want to be president? Because I'd be the president. I'd have, I'd be able to do whatever I wanted. Well, what do you want to do? No, I don't know. What do you want me to do? <laughs> you tell me. I'll do whatever you want to get in that office or who, you know, or whatever it is, you know, because it's the, it's the position. So these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, I've heard them alliterated this way. It's the desire for pleasure, the desire for possessions, the desire for power. All three of those things. This is what characterizes the world. Now, probably for you, one or two of these is much more of a big deal than the other one or the other two. You know, you think of the, oh, those covetous, greedy people. Their Lord is going to judge them. But meanwhile, you're, uh, you're actually really resentful because they have more than you or you know, you have no problem. You know, I don't need, I don't need lots of stuff, but you're really self-indulgent in your flesh and you don't deny yourself anything. That's what it means to be a part of the world. That's what John means by the world is people who are driven by their body. They're driven by their desire for stuff or for power. And he says, don't love that. James 4 verse 4 says it even stronger. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Good old James. As a Christian, you are to maintain the separation from all that is wicked, and here's the thing, all that is common. 
You know, to the, this is the world. This isn't like the most wicked people. This is the world, the average person in, on planet Earth today. You are to be different and separate from them, to be recognizably different in the way you live your life. I'm not even going to get into specifics here, but like I'm just thinking of examples. The way you talk, the way you dress, the way you plan, the way you work, the way you play, the way you study, whatever it is, should be a testimony that you belong to God and not to yourself. How does somebody who belongs to God act? Now, and again, I'm not even coming out and say it has to be a certain way. Sometimes it does, but how does, how does someone who belongs to God conduct themselves? Don't try to be like everyone else. You know, don't, don't try to, like there's one, there's one sense where fitting in is a good thing because like peer pressure can work because there's some people that need some peer pressure in their life. You know, they never had mom or dad or brother or sister to tell them that's really weird. And so they grew up doing weird things and now they don't know why anybody doesn't like them. Peer pressure can be a good thing. However, when you're trying to fit into the system of the world, I want to be just like everybody else. We want a king just like all the nations, Lord. Don't do that. And here's the deal too. A lot of times, this is a challenge for people who are, who are good at fitting in the world. Like the, the different pyramids of, you know, of whether you're attractive or you're talented or you have money or you have influence. Like you, you have a stake in the world. Like you could be somebody. Like you guys are in college now and some of you are out. But, you know, you're starting to recognize your potential. And when you, when you get somebody who is dedicated and is in something that they are naturally good at, man, that's somebody that can do anything. You got to watch out for that. Like, it's not saying a, it's a bad thing, but like if the way that they're conducting themselves is not the way that God would have you to conduct yourselves, it can become a snare, you know, and you can start to say, well, I don't want to be a believer because I'm not at the top of that food chain. <laughs> I don't want to live like a radical Christian. I don't want to go to the prayer meetings because I can't, I can't be the top there. But when I go here, when I'm at work, man, I'm, I, I know how that game's played. I can do that. I can master that. I know how this class works. I know how this video game or this, uh, you know, exercise or whatever that you're into. There's also the opposite of that, where you come to church and you become a hardcore believer because you feel like I can be the top of this food chain. You know, you might be a loser at work, a loser at school. Nobody really likes you at home. You're not that good at anything, but you come here and you're like, oh man, I can do, I can get into this. And you're coming at the things of God from a fleshly carnal perspective. That's not good either. He says, do not love the world. Do not love the things in the world. Especially because he says, all that is in the world is passing away. It's just here for a moment. You know, why do you want to sell your soul for beauty or for pleasure? Things that are just going to fade away, right? You know, you're, you, it's nice for a moment. You know, I, I've known people who are, are so vain that they live their entire life for that every now and then when somebody comments on how they look or that, you know, somebody who they catch somebody staring at them and they live for those moments. But that's such a fleeting thing. It's going to be gone, right? Or when you, you give it all up for, because, you know, you're, you're athletic and you're strong and you're good at these things. Well, I mean, you could be injured and then it's all taken away from you. And then what? You know, and forget about selling your soul. I mean, some people will sacrifice their entire youth pursuing these things. Their, their best years of their life, they'll, get, they'll live in indulgence and for themselves. And then once that all starts to fade away and they got nothing left, well, I guess I'll come back to the church now because it's all over. Man, that's not right. We're to be like Jesus, who was in the world, but not what? Of the world. He participated in the world 
in order to transform it, to, ch to change it from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. And, you know, I've had folks say, well, Jesus hung out with sinners, so that means I can go out and get drunk every night. That's not what Jesus was doing. He wasn't partying with people. He was out there being salt and light and shining the light of the gospel to people, and people were falling on their faces and weeping at his feet. And Jesus has the same thing for us. John 17, verses 15 through 16. Jesus prayed to the Father. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. You ever wish, God, why don't you just take me home? Mike and I were talking about heaven today in the car. A little boy. He's, Daddy, where is Jesus now? He said, when's Jesus going to die again? <laughs> I said, he's not going to die again, buddy. He rose from the dead. Well, I can't see him. So yeah, he's in heaven. Where's heaven? I said, it's, I, you know, he's, he's a little kid. I'm not going to go into, well, it's, in, it's a spiritual place, Micah, so it's not really a little. I said, it's way, way up in the sky. You know, we'll start there, and we'll build the theology later. He goes, but Daddy, you have to build buildings on the ground. <laughs> I'm like, that's very true. I said, heaven's a special place that God made, you know. But uh, we want to be there sometimes. Like, Lord, just get me out of here. And there can be, and Jesus felt that way sometimes. said, look, Lord, how long do I have to be with these people? They're so full of doubting, right? But he prays, I ask that you don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So he's saying, you got to be here. You have to live here. They need you. Just, I'm going to pray that you're delivered from the devil, that the one who rules over this world does not have his way with you, just as he was not of the world. You are to be a transforming agent in the world. Politics, work, school, your neighborhood, walking after Jesus, refusing the false dilemmas that the world will offer you. Or, do you want this or this? Are you on this team or that team, the red team or the blue team? Or where, you know, where do you stand? It's, just, it's like Jesus who just, I walk with the Father. I do whatever the Father says, and that's what I do. So I encourage you to not walk in conformity to the world. You know, you're not a free thinker if you become just like every other sinner. <laughs> you know, it's really funny. People pride themselves on being free thinkers because they, they believe the things that their professor just taught them five minutes ago. You know, it's like, you're not a free thinker. You're just, you're just parroting what somebody told you. Like, yeah, but I gave up everything my parents ever taught me, you know, to, to believe this. Like, well, that just kind of sounds foolish, but that's a little rabbit trail. But walk according to what is true and everlasting. Whoever does the will of God abides, remains forever. Don't just do what's fun. Is fun wrong? No, but don't just live for that. Don't just do what's expedient, what is the most easiest thing to do right now. Don't just be average. Be better. Go and live out in your place of business, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your class, wherever you are. You're living like Jesus. And sometimes they'll notice right away. And they'll be like, what is, what's your deal? <laughs> You're like, I'm a Christian. Oh, okay. I am too. I am too. You, know, you ever have that happen? Yeah, it's okay. Well, I didn't notice. And then you have a great opportunity to encourage somebody. But, you know, and sometimes it takes a long time. You know, uh, when I was at working at Ruby Tuesday a few years ago, you know, I didn't cuss. Such a simple thing. I just didn't cuss. Nobody noticed for a really long time. And then one day, the guy who was working bar says, hey, I, I, I took the drink and I was going to go take it. He goes, hey, Tyler, I'll give you this, but you have to say, and then he said a word that I won't say. <laughs> he says, you have to say this first. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Fine, you're not getting this. I'm like, fine, peace, I'm out of here. And so I didn't, and I walked away and he goes, no, come on back. Here you go. And then, but we got to talk about that later. He's like, yeah, we were just like talking. I was like, have you ever heard Tyler cuss before? No, I haven't. Let's, let's see if we can get him to do it. You know, and they were, you know, they weren't like, you know, plotting to, you know, ruin my faith. They were just, you know, 
that's weird, right? And, but it's just the little things like that that help you stand out a little bit. You know, when somebody tells you, yeah, I get cash tips, but I always bring it in as zero because it makes my percentages go up at the end of the week. Like, oh, I don't do that. It's not honest. I just don't ring in my bad tips. I'd rather take a zero. Well, that's not what happened. And really? Okay. Why? I'm like, that's just, it's not honest. I'm a Christian. Okay. Well, yeah. Like those things, like you're living out a salt and light in the world. And then sometimes people who are believers will be like, you know, I really ought to be doing that too. That's what Jesus did. It wasn't like he just walked in everywhere and says, everybody, listen up. I'm, I'm going to preach here now in the middle of the Ruby Tuesday. I got plenty of opportunities to share the gospel, but it was just living life like a Christian. Being in the world, but not being of the world. Being better than you, than the, the world wants you to be, than the world would have you be. Just be better. Oh, so you think you're better than me? Well, I hope so. I have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of me, <laughs> right? That doesn't make me better. That just means that God is helping. Would you like God's help too? Let me tell you about Jesus. See, you can make any conversation an opportunity to share the gospel. Sometimes it's harder than others, but it can be done. So do not love the world. I'm just going to read this passage again. It's so good. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Love that. Amen. So that's that section. Now remember what he's doing. He just laid out in verses 12 through 14 a really strong, encouraging message saying, you are not like these false brethren. 15 through 17, he says, so maintain that distinction. And now he's going to get into who these people are. And a really interesting passage of scripture here. And so many different avenues that I wish we could have walked down. We're not going to get to, but uh, I encourage you to study it on your own. So let's read verses 18 through 19. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they are all not of us. They all are not of us. Very interesting passage of scripture here where John talks about antichrists, plural, as well as the antichrist. He references it in 2 John as well. This is uh, a phrase that he used. And he opens by saying, this is the last hour. What does he mean by that? I mean, just what it sounds like. The end of the world is coming, man. By which he means that we are at the end of the age and the day of the Lord is about to come. You see this phrase used a lot in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. And it means the day when the Lord sets everything right. The end of time. And he says we are in the last hour, meaning we are right there before this happens. And, you know, the New Testament, the Old Testament talks a lot about what will happen in the last days. The New Testament says over and over and over again that we are in the last days. Acts chapter 2, 17, Peter said that we're in the last days at Pentecost. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul said, we are in the last days. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 said, in these last days, the Father has spoken. James in James chapter 5, verse 3. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Every writer of the New Testament epistles, except for Jude, says that we're living in the last days. Isn't that something? John goes even farther and says, we are living in the last hour. So we expect that the end of all things, the final rebellion against God, the judgment of the world, 
and the return of Jesus Christ, these things are imminent, meaning they could happen at any time. Now, there are some who don't believe that the return of Jesus is imminent, that there are things that need to happen first, but I don't know how else you're supposed to understand that it is the last hour and how many times Jesus tells us to watch and wait and look and it's going to come, it's going to surprise you, you got to be ready. So I'm not going to dive too far into that, but he's saying, we believe that it's the last hour. It's like, John, how do you know that? Remember Peter has that passage where he says, there will come scoffers in the last days who will say, yeah, last days. Okay, sure. You've been saying that for how many thousands of years now? So how do we know? He says, we know because we have seen many antichrists who have already arisen. So this word antichrist is a transliteration of the Greek word antichristos. So Christos means Christ. And then you add anti to the beginning of that. So you get antichrist. That means against Christ. Or it could also mean instead of Christ, as in like a false Christ. And the term Christ, of course, referring to Jesus as the promised one, as the anointed one, as the Messiah. So he's saying there are people who are coming to falsely claim that title. Jesus said this would happen in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, remember? He said there will many false messiahs will come in the last days. False messiah, antichrist, same thing. But this is a John's particular word. And he says now the antichrist is coming. Now this is how we typically think of it. When we hear antichrist, we capitalize it and say the antichrist. That is correct. And we're going to talk about what that means. But there have been other antichrists that has, have come, according to John. So when you talk about the antichrist in the Bible, he's got a couple different names that he's given. John is the one that uses antichrist, and that's the one that we've sort of latched onto. Um, he's also called the beast in the book of Revelation and in uh, Daniel some. There are a couple different beasts, but the one who's kind of called the beast, that's what uh, he's talking about is the antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 calls him the man of lawlessness and the son of perdition. Micah chapter 5, verse 5 calls him the Assyrian, among other things. So there's a bunch of different figures that are described by different names, but we understand them to be prophesying about the same person, and we use the term that John uses in 1 John, Antichrist. I could go into a lot of details about what the Antichrist is, who he will be, what he will do. I would love to do that, but I, I want to get through this passage. So right now I'm just going to kind of sum it up. There's a couple different things. Who is the Antichrist, the beast, the man of lawlessness, the Assyrian? There will be a ruler at the end of time who will arise and lead a bloody world empire. He will oppress Israel. He will persecute believers and he will set up idolatrous worship of himself. So you consider men like Nebuchadnezzar or men like Antiochus Epiphanes who were like the Antichrist in the sense that they oppressed the nation of Israel. They brought destruction. They set up false worship. Uh, and and there was, they had this vast empire. What Daniel goes into is that there have been all these empires, but at the end there's going to be one that is greater than any of them that have come before. It's going to be more vicious, more destructive, more chaotic, and there's going to be a man at its head that we call the Antichrist. And he will set up idolatrous worship of themselves. I'm going to read a couple passages here uh, to give you kind of what the Bible has to say. Um, but that's kind of the, over, the overview. We're waiting for like a, a last evil dictator <laughs> is who the Antichrist is. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4 says this, Let no one deceive you in any way, 
For that day, which day? The day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. There's another topic we could talk about for a long time, but we'll leave that for now. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So the Antichrist will be somebody who is raised up in the last days after the rebellion, whatever that is. It's also called the, the falling away or, or the apostasy in some translations. And he will destroy every other kind of worship, most of all the Jews and the Christians, and he will take his seat in the temple and proclaim himself to be God. He will mandate worship of himself. Pretty weird stuff. But, I mean, not all that far-fetched when you look at the world. You know, I mean, how we've, we've come so close to that before. You know, we barely stopped Hitler and we barely contained, you know, the communist dictators. There's always some crazy guy around the world that's trying to take over the world. And the Lord is saying, eventually, one of these guys is going to be specially empowered by Satan and will succeed. And that's something that the Lord will allow to happen in order to bring his judgment on the world. Kind of God's last judgment, believe it or not, is going to be fine have it your way. And it says the Lord will withdraw his hand and just let wickedness have its way. Isn't that something? Would you want to live in that world? Me neither. Revelation describes him this way. Now, this is a very symbolic description, So, uh, but I think the poetry of it kind of captures the brutality of who he is. John said, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Honestly, monster would be a better translation there. <laughs> it's, it's, I saw a monster, a beast rising up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems or crowns on his horns and blasphemous names written on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, the dragon is a symbol of Satan in the book of Revelation, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Remember Jesus was tempted with this in the, uh, in the desert? I'll give you all these things if you bow down and worship me. Here's a guy who's going to take that deal. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against him? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So, you get some symbolic descriptions of who the Antichrist will be. This man will be the pinnacle of wickedness on the earth, the incarnation of evil, and his reign is going to precipitate the return of Jesus Christ. What we see through scripture is it's going to get so bad that the Jews are finally going to call on Jesus to save them. How, what would it take for the nation of Israel today to call on Jesus to save them? They have defined themselves by refusing to accept Jesus. But this is going to get so rough that they're going to be brought to a place where they'll say, Jesus is Lord. So there is a lot we do know about the Antichrist. There's a lot we don't know about the Antichrist. 
uh, because you're trying to piece together a lot of different pieces from Scripture. Um, I'd encourage you to read the book of Daniel, 2 Thessalonians, Revelation, obviously. Uh, there's some things in Ezekiel and some of the other minor prophets for more. Uh, always be very, very careful of people who want to say, I know who the Antichrist is. It seems like every president we've ever had has been called the Antichrist, right? You know, I mean, stretching back to like Jefferson, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, really. So you got to watch out for that stuff. And, and uh, because we don't know. And there's, there's even debate about where is he going to come from. There are people who are convinced the Antichrist will be a false Christ. Like he'll be a, he'll be a believer. And they look to the Roman Catholic Church for that. Um, of course, there was a long time where uh, Protestants were not very happy with the Roman Catholic Church. So that might have something to do with it. There are people who are convinced he'll be Jewish because he's going to rebuild the temple. Uh, there are people who are convinced that he's going to be a, a revived Roman emperor. There are people who believe he's going to be a revived Ottoman or Islamic emperor. I think there's things to be said for each of those. But go do your own reading. Go do your own study. Um, see what the word has to say. Be really careful about coming to firm conclusions on things that the Bible is not clear on. Okay? What we do know is this man will return before, will arise before the return of the Lord. But John mentions here that there have been other smaller antichrists, you could say. So we know we're looking for the antichrist. But he says already other antichrists have arisen. What does this mean here? This is kind of the spiraling typological nature of biblical prophecy. There's often one big amazing thing that's being prophesied. But along the way, you'll have smaller fulfillments. The best example is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the Bible says, will be a day of smoke and darkness and blood, and it will be the, the return of God when he comes to judge the whole world. That's very clear. But you read through the prophets, and they'll say that when Babylon came, that was the day of the Lord. When Edom was destroyed, it was the day of the Lord. When Assyria came, it was the day of the Lord. So it's not saying that's the end of the world. It's saying these things are a picture and a smaller version of what will consummate at the end of the age. So that's typically what you see through Bible prophecy, that there's one event that we're waiting for that's eschatological and enormous in scale, but there are smaller things that are pictures of what that's going to be like. So according to John, the fact that we have seen many arise who are antichrists or anti-Christian in their attitude, that's a sign that the end is near. The fact that we're seeing these smaller people who fit the bill but are not the guy lets us know that the guy is coming, which means that the end is near. And John mentions that these men came out of the church, although he makes very clear that they were not of us, right? In verse 19, they were not real believers. Now, when he says of us, the Greek word there is ek. They came ek us. Now, that word ek means out of, and it describes being sourced from something. So he's saying they did not have their origin in the body of Christ. They, they left us, but they didn't belong here. They, they were not born of the Spirit. And that's what he means when he says those phrases. And as Jesus predicted, there are many in the church who seem to be good people. They seem to be like sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They're false believers. Matthew 17, uh, sorry, Matthew 7, verse 15. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their what? Fruit. And so what John's been doing in this whole book is giving us a list of fruit tests. Do they love the brothers or are they full of hate? Do they keep God's commandments or do they do their own thing? Right? He, he runs through how to, how to check their fruit to be able to distinguish the false from the true. And John says that they went out of us. God allowed them to, it, it to be made plain. 
who they were, that it was revealed, it was manifested who they really were. And God allowed that to happen to spare the people of God. We've always got to be on the lookout for people who want to come and fleece the flock, who speak the language of the church, but they are opposed to Jesus Christ. Those people, according to John, are antichrists. They are taking a stand on something that is not Christian. It is not, in the best sense of the word, it is not Christian. It's their own idea, and it comes from the enemy. In verse 20, it says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge, or you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So he contrasts these people that he just described, these antichrists, who are pre, pre, uh, forerunners of the antichrist. But he says, but that's not like you and me. He says, we are anointed by God. This is such a cool idea here. Because false teachers always want to come and claim that they have a special power and special anointing from God. Special revelation, special knowledge. But John is like, you don't need that. Now, little note here. The older translations always said, uh, but you have all knowledge. Most of the newer translations have, you all have knowledge. Uh, the two Greek words there are very similar. They're pantes and panta. Um, so I, it's not clear exactly what that's supposed to be. It's probably based on the textual critical process we've talked about before. Probably that you all have knowledge. That, that seems to make more sense than you have all knowledge. But I think either way, the point is being made. So just a little note on what's going on in the text there. But he says, you all have knowledge. You don't need special insight from so-called religious thinkers and special intellectuals because God's truth is in you. Or people come and says, God has given me special power, special anointing. God carried me up into the heavens and said, I have sent you out to do this thing. He, John's like, that's not special. <laughs> you all have anointing from God. That word for anointing is chrisma. That would be C-H-R-I-S-M-A, chrisma. The power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit within you. You all have that anointing if you belong to Jesus, and you do. Anytime in the Bible you saw anointing, where they took the oil and they poured it on somebody's head, it was a symbol of the power of the Holy Spirit. That is not just, we're going to pour oil on you, and now you're ready. It's, it was symbolic that the Spirit of God is going to come upon you. And that has been fulfilled in the new covenant. Jesus said in Luke 14, he says, I have been anointed by the Holy Spirit to do what I'm doing. And so you are in him, he has sent the same spirit to you. You have the same anointing that Jesus did when he said to proclaim liberty to the captives, right? To proclaim sight to the blind and hope to the poor. You have that same anointing from God. You say, are you sure that I do? Well, you better. Romans 8, 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Listen, are you a believer? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you trust the word of God? Then according to the Bible, when you made that confession of faith, the Holy Spirit of God came and dwelt within you. That's just that what the Bible says. That's not, I hope, that's what it says. That's why John writes us. He says, I'm not writing to you as people that don't know what's right, that you're so stupid that you're going to get duped by these people, and that's why I've got to write to you. He says, I'm writing this to you because you know what's right. You've got the Spirit of God within you. You have knowledge. The Spirit of God, it says, it's one, someone who, who instructs us in all things. 
always people with a new revelation from God or special power from God. But we all have the spirit within us testifying of the truth. You know, I mean, every cult, it seems like they've, or new religion, they've got some special experience that they had where the, 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 supposedly the spirit of God gave them special knowledge. Like you think of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, or you think of Muhammad or uh, any of these people that, you know, you have to listen to me and Jesus. But John is like, why are you, <laughs> why do you want to listen to people who says, well, they're anointed. He's like, you're all anointed. So I, the, the lesson there is you don't view yourself as a Christian bench warmer. Well, I let the, peop- the pastors and the servants do the ministry. No, <laughs> you have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. The pastor's and leader's job is to equip you to do the work of ministry. Well, you preach and you handle all this stuff. Yeah, here, but what did we just talk about? You are to be out in the world doing ministry, at your job, in your neighborhood, living like Jesus would live if he was there. I can't do that. Yes, you can. You have the same spirit of God within you. You don't just have the same spirit your pastor does. You have the same spirit that Jesus did. Every believer has the spirit. So you need to foster familiarity with the spirit of God who dwells in you so that you can recognize when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in his word and in our hearts. And that's how you, when you say, I want to learn the voice of God, you always start with the Bible because you've got a giant book of things that the Spirit has already said. So learn that first. Because then when you, st- you begin to listen to uh, the Spirit's voice in your heart, you'll be able to check it against what he's already said because he's not going to contradict himself. And you learn through prayer and through talking to other people who already know the Lord and through worship, you learn to discern the voice of, of the Spirit. This also goes along with, with uh, stirring up the spiritual gifts that are in you. However the Lord has gifted you to edify the church, and spiritual gifts, I mean, you know this, but they're not, well, I'm really good at drawing or I'm really good at public speaking. Those are not spiritual gifts. Those might be talents that God has enabled you to get, but a spiritual gift is a special anointing of power upon your life that God has given to you. Lots of people can teach. Not everybody has the gift of teaching, right? Lots of people can encourage. Not everybody has the gift of encouragement. We're all called to evangelize, but some people just have the gift of evangelism, man. Have you noticed that? And you get out there and you're like, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> but you need to find what your gift is and s- let the Lord stir it up. 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 through 7. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The spirit indwells you. That will never change as long as you are walking with Jesus, as long as you are a believer because that's the definition of being a believer. He's the seal of your salvation. <laughs> but you can receive power and anointing for ministry and life when you ask in Jesus' name. In Acts chapter 2, the apostles were anointed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit came and dwelt within them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied and did ministry. In Acts chapter 4, when the persecution came, they came back and prayed to the Lord, and God filled them up again. And the place where they were in was shaken, and they went out and they did signs and wonders. And you see this throughout the, the, new, the book of Acts and in the New Testament. We're always to be coming back to the well and saying, Spirit, fill me up, fill me up. And I don't even like to get into the theology of that. The point is, because some people want to be real nuanced about it and say, no, it's not that you get more of the Spirit. It's that you're made more aware of the Spirit. Call it whatever you want. Do you have it? Are you right now, this minute, pulsing with the power of God within you? The fire's never going to go out, but sometimes you've got to go over there and stoke the thing. Throw some logs on it. And then the Spirit will begin to move through you. 
And John makes this clear. That is how we guard against antichrists. It's the power of the Spirit at work in the church. And Paul says a similar thing, by the way, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6-8. Talking about the Antichrist, he says, You know what is restraining him now, that he may be revealed in his time. Something is restraining the appearance of the Antichrist. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It's kind of like if the devil could do it today, he'd do it today. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So what's restraining it? the evil one? Well, it calls him a he, so it's not some force, right? And he will do it until he is out of the way, the restrainer. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. What's he saying? He's saying that, Someone is restraining the mystery of lawlessness in the world. Who could that be except the Lord? And who is it that's at work in the world right now through the church? The Holy Spirit is the one restraining the man of lawlessness. So is that saying that the Holy Spirit is going to no longer be in the world? No, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. What we're saying is the Holy Spirit at work in the church is what is holding back the mystery of lawlessness. We are the salt and light. We are the last chances of the world. One of the reasons we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, because the church is victorious. The church is always victorious. And so when the Holy Spirit's ministry through us is out of the way, that's when the man of lawlessness will be revealed. But what does that say about us? That until the rapture comes, we are pushing back the darkness by living in the world with the Spirit's power, as Jesus said. Those silly little stories I was telling about at work, you know, just, you know, joking around with people. Why don't you curse? Or people who say, oh, you're going to school. What are you studying? I'm studying biblical studies. Oh, so one lady asked me, oh, so you're like a holy man. And I was like, yeah, I guess I am, you know, because <laughs> it's like, oh, that's interesting. But then we have conversations. We talk about God. She didn't get saved. But this lady, she was a Rastafarian Hindu. She came to work high because dope is part of their religion. It's a great religion because you can just smoke as much pot as you want, you know, but, uh, you know, whatever. But, I mean, she would come to work high and drunk and all these things. And, but I would get to talk to her about God. I got to talk to her about the Lord, and she would ask me questions because she knew that I was a believer. So I don't know where her life is right now. But at some point, she had an interaction with somebody who was full of the Spirit and was willing to speak into her life. When the church is doing that everywhere, ministry doesn't just happen at church, guys. It's supposed to happen out there, primarily. And then we come here to get fitted to go back out. So I know we're going to keep coming back to this. Where do you work? Who are your dorm mates? Who's your roommates? What about your family? What about your neighborhood? When you go out and you're standing in the line, you guys live in Virginia, it's so easy to talk to people in line at the, at the store and just turn the conversation to spiritual things. It's not hard. Yeah, so do you go to church anywhere? Yeah, I do. Oh, great. Then you can start talking. Say, no, not really. Say, oh, okay. Why not? I don't know. I just never really thought about it before. Well, you know, I go to church and, you know, I believe in God. Do you believe in God? This is really kind of like an awkward topic. Like, no, it's not. I'm just, we're not fighting. I'm just, just interested. I guess I never really thought about it before. Well, here's one thing that, to leave you to think about. And that five-second interaction is enough to nudge them towards the Lord. How many testimonies have you heard of people who had like 12 different encounters like that before somebody finally laid it on the line and they gave it over to the Lord? That's what's restraining the man of lawlessness. You and me by the Spirit's power. So get off the bench. Most of you are already off the bench, but stay off the bench because the Lord is using you. 
Verse 22 through 23, we're going to pick it up a little bit now. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So this is kind of the doctrinal distinctives of Antichrists. <laughs> how, how do you know if somebody is an Antichrist? If they reject Jesus Christ. The hallmark of an Antichrist, according to John, is a rejection of Jesus as Savior, as Lord, as Mediator, and as God. False ideas are always trying to sneak into the church and use the church as a vehicle to promote their own stuff. Right? People come into the church because it's they're around these people and before too long we can have a conversation and I can get my weird stuff out there. That happens way more than you guys would think. Especially when the church is small because people think that they can run in and just start running things. But John's like, I'm not going to let this happen. You are not a part of this. You have, you know, remember when Peter said to uh, Simon the, the magician who asked him for the, for the secret to the Holy Spirit? And Peter's like, you have no share or portion in these things. Simon had been baptized. But Peter's like, you're an antichrist, man. You are an antichrist, and this is not going to happen here. Simon Magus, as he's called traditionally, ended up becoming what's called the first heretic and led a really weird, demonic, like supernatural, magical splinter of Christianity. That's traditionally church history what happened. It's people who want to use the church for their own ends, their own ideas. But here's the deal. Christianity is and always has been people who are disciples of Jesus. That's who we are. It's not just an ideology, although it, it is in a way. Christianity is an ideology. And it's not just an institution. And the church is an institution, right? It's God's in institution. You know, and... But, I mean, you know, sometimes it really bugs me when people say Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. I feel like that sounds so pretentious. <laughs> of course it's a religion. What else are you going to call it? You know, but you know what we mean when we say that, right? That it's not just our set of rules that we've come up with. We are following Jesus Christ. That's what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. We are centered. Everything we believe is centered on the person of Jesus Christ. The closest thing would probably be Islam, right? where it's all centered on Muhammad. But even if you, if you look into what they believe and what they teach, it's not like what we teach. We believe that everything hangs on Jesus. He is the one that brings us to God the Father. You know, they would never say things like that about Muhammad. That's why we're, we're distinct and we're different. Jesus said in John 14, 6, you know it, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way. He was the only way provided for us to be saved. The house is burning. God took a, took a giant axe and hacked a hole in the wall and said, this way, that door is called Jesus. There's no other way to get out. It's not going to happen. Now, people who want to say, Jesus was, well, he's a really good man. A lot of good things to say. But I always want to skip things like John 14, 6, right? <laughs> He said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Or when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. There's a lot of good things to say. No, if he wasn't God, he had some weird things to say, man. And he was an egotist, and he was probably crazy. Or people who say Jesus was a liar, that he deceived people. That's kind of the Jewish perspective, unfortunately. Pray for, pray for the Jews, God's people, but they believe Jesus was a liar. They've even gone through the Old Testament and reinterpreted passages because they're just too perfect of an apologetic. 
for, for Christians. If I'm not mistaken, check me on this, but I'm pretty sure I've read this before, that in many synagogues, when they do their reading of the Old Testament, they'll skip Isaiah 53. Because it's just, it's just people have used it too many times to point to Jesus. And if you don't know any better, it would be talking about Jesus as Messiah. But it's like, because it is talking about Jesus as Messiah. So call him a liar. Or he was a prophet. He was a prophet of God. Yes. No. When you say those things about him, you yourself are a liar and an antichrist, according to John. Because why? This is the rejection of God's plan of salvation. It's people who are disrupting other people from finding forgiveness and life in Jesus. That's what an antichrist is. Somebody who prevents somebody else from finding salvation. That's why he says, if you deny the son, you deny the father. Because this was God's plan. God's gracious sacrifice of his son for salvation. When you come in and convince people that God the father's sacrifice was insufficient, you are fighting against God. And here's the deal. Every heresy and every cult, it seems, has weird ideas about Jesus. That's where you always want to start. When somebody comes knocking on your door and they've got a new Bible for you to read. Who do you believe Jesus is? He's the son of God. You got to dig a little bit. <laughs> when you say son of well, we're all, you know, sons of God, bro. Yeah, we're all, you know, special. But Jesus was just more special. He was an angel. He was Jesus, Satan's brother. He was the only sinless prophet. He was the, I mean, whatever it is. There's always some weird idea about Jesus. But we walk in the apostles' doctrine. Remember what John said at the very beginning of this book? He said, that which was from the beginning, which we had seen and heard and handled and been around. He says, guys, I knew Jesus. I was commissioned by Jesus to teach these things to you. We are standing in the traditional, historic, orthodox faith in Jesus Christ. That has been handed down for 2,000 years. Heresies and cults, they go in and out. They're here for a while, and they're gone. Even if it's for 100 years, in the grand scheme of things, we know who Jesus is. Philippians 2, 9, and 10 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What does it mean to be a Christian? To bow the knee to Jesus Christ in surrender and submission. To be antichrist is to say, oh, you don't need to do that. Oh yeah, Jesus had some great things, but I mean, Jesus was just showing us who we could be. That's not what Jesus would be doing. You haven't read your Bible if that's what you think. And then folks want to come in and say, well, I mean, you, you have to read it, read between the lines because the apostles, of course, were biased. And you know better than the apostles, 2,000 years separated with no other evidence of what Jesus would have taught other than what's right in front of you. We exalt the name of Jesus. Verse 24 and 25, he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So he exhorts them to remain, to abide. Abide just means remain or stay. It's the Greek word meno. In what they've heard from the beginning. He's used this phrase a number of times, right? About what is from the beginning. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Stay in that. Don't be led astray. And I give the same exhortation to you. Don't chase after weird teachings or like pseudo-spiritual nonsense. Just be a Christian. Why can't we? I've asked people this, but why can't you just be a Christian? Why do you have to be like this special niche, like boutique Christian? <laughs> of like the, you're the special cool kind that has all these strange ideas. Just be a believer. It's pride of life is what it is because you start to take pride in the fact that you can accept things that other people can't. 
Don't be led astray. We are not to be innovators of theology. We are to be caretakers of what has been handed down to us from the beginning. We build on the foundation. We don't add to it. Our theology is growing an increased understanding of what's being revealed, not trying to invent or come up with new revelation. Antichrists, they're going to focus on themselves, their ideas, rather than on Jesus. They'll kind of, they speak as if, they don't ever speak like, I am a disciple of Jesus. They speak, I finally figured out what Jesus means. He agrees with me. You've exalted yourself to the place of Christ. But we are to be distinctly Christian. We are all about Jesus. Even the Holy Spirit within us testifies of Jesus. Father has given the name of Jesus the place above all others. The entire Trinity exalts the name of Jesus. That's what it means to be a believer. So abide in that. Remain in that. And are you concerned about how to abide? What does it mean to abide? I don't know what to do. Just stay here. Don't go anywhere. Remain in what you've been taught. Learn it. Strengthen it. Give your worship to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's not complicated. You just stay in what you've been taught. Abiding, remaining. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have as 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, uh, 27 says, or sorry, 25, eternal life. That's what God offers you. Eternal life now and forever. Abundant life now, eternal life forever. He's given us all things. So listen, that's enough for me. I don't need weird, strange ideas. I just want Jesus. I just want Jesus, exactly who he was. Believe me, I've got plenty to do understanding who Jesus was without adding to that that understanding with all your weird thoughts, Antichrist. <laughs> so we finish verse 26 and 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So we finish with John's words about these liars. They were deceiving the church. He's saying, I'm writing this to you to warn you about these people who are trying to lead you astray and to let you know who they really are. You know, I mean, obviously, people were probably friends with these people. And, you know, they, no, no one who's got a weird heretical idea shows up and, and blows the trumpet. They make friends first. They gain trust first. And then they ask sly little questions to plant seeds of doubt in people's mind. And then they come and they try and reap a harvest for themselves. Look out for these people. We have liars too. They want to erode every teaching and make us just like the rest of the world and fuel religion. Always be on the lookout for people like this. You need to have a good sensor for weird. Like, if, 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 if a Bible teaching sounds weird, it's probably weird. Not like, oh man, that's what the Bible says, and it's, it's difficult to understand, like, you know, the beast rising up out of the sea. But like the people who stopped me in front of Barnes and Noble and said, you know, that God has a wife. That's just, yeah, everybody, oh, you just made the face. That's weird. So it's probably weird. I even told them, I said, guys, this is really weird. But we, and they pulled out an extra book. They always have an extra book, right? This was written by an archbishop, but they wouldn't tell me the name of their church or their religion. So, you know, I think they're, they're part of this group from Korea, but, you know, I digress here. Always people who are trying to bring out weird things. Build on the foundation of the truth. Learn the word of God. You know, even if you can't remember the exact reference, that little alarm bell will go off in your head that says, I'm pretty sure there's something in the Bible that says the opposite of what you're trying to teach. And John brings it back to that anointing, that chrisma, 
the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life who cannot be forgotten. We, we are so bad about this. We forget the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, 26, the helper, remember we learned about that word last week, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's why John's like, you don't need someone to come in and teach you. I mean, picture these guys coming into these churches like, oh, you guys, you got a great foundation here, but you really need me to teach you the next steps, right? Uh, What ended up happening shortly after John's death in Ephesus and in places like this is there was a group of thinkers called the Gnostics that came in and they had, they believed that we were all like divine emanations from the gods and we needed to find the the spark of divinity within ourselves. Sound familiar? It's still going on, right? Um, But they come into the church and they heard about Jesus and they thought Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, the divine one who will give us enlightenment. And so they started coming into the church and teaching all this weird stuff. And John is like, you don't need some weird teacher to come in and teach you a bunch of weird things. That's one of the reasons, by the way, we should not be respecters of persons in the church. Well, he's got a bunch of degrees. Listen, I have some degrees and I can tell you that it is much more important to know the word and to be a person of prayer than it is to have your degrees. I've read books from people who have lots of degrees that have only become dangerous by virtue of their credentials because they don't know the Lord and they're ice cold spiritually. You look to the Lord and you listen to the Holy Spirit within you. He's the antidote. He's the one that comes into your heart and transforms you from a sinner to a saint. And he gives you that check. You ever just had a bad feeling? Not like, oh, it's a roller coaster. I don't want to get on the roller coaster. But like, this is just wrong. There's something not right here. And we're like, that's weird. That, that's, you know, you think that about somebody. And you're like, that's, I shouldn't think that about people. I used to get that in the youth group sometimes when I led the youth group. Somebody would come in and I'm like, that girl's trouble. I'm like, don't say that, Tyler. Be, you're supposed to be the welcoming, loving one. And then I, just, but then I just couldn't shake it. And I would even say this to our leader sometimes. I'm like, I just have something from the Lord. Just don't make it weird. Just keep an eye on her or keep an eye on him. And then a lot of times that was the Lord. And I'm glad that we did things like that. Sometimes you'll be reading a book or, and you're like, this is all really good stuff. And then they drop something and you're like, mm, I don't think so. A lot of times it's the things people won't say, right? And you see people interviewed who have a lot of great things to say. And then someone asks them a point blank question. And they can't answer it. And they just kind of slip around it. You know what I mean? There was one guy who was on TV and this is a rabbit trail. But I don't care. Uh, there was one guy who was on TV one time and somebody asked him, uh, I think it was about the virgin birth. And he says, why is it important that Jesus was born of a virgin? And this guy gave the weirdest answer you've ever heard. He like, wouldn't answer the question, wouldn't, uh, he just starts saying things, you know, like, I just want to love people where they are. And that's the most important thing. And my, my dad, who, of course, is my boss also here at the church, looked at me and goes, if you were ever on TV and you answered a question that way, you would be publicly fired. <laughs> I was like, wow. He said, I don't, he says, you you, those are softball questions. You need to be able to answer those, right? That's the kind of thing you look for. Somebody who's got a lot of great stuff going on and they're doing a lot of good and then all of a sudden they, you, it comes out that they're not sure if Jesus is God or not. <clears throat> no, thank you. That's the spirit of Antichrist. But they're doing so much good stuff. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm not touching it. It's the work of Satan. We need to be discerning, as Jesus said, and as John says here. Well, how, what gives you the right to say that? Because I have the anointing of the Holy Spirit in my life, and so do you. The chrisma of God is on your life. When you were brought into the family of God, when you were brought into communion with the Holy Trinity, 
God wants to empower each of you to defend against error and save souls and transform the world where you are. This happens by the Holy Spirit to empower you just to go live life, but to live it for Jesus, not being like everybody else and being a testimony to who God is. Well, they're going to think I'm weird. Listen, people who are desperate and hurting, they don't want somebody that's just like everybody else. What, what do you have to offer them? Well, you'll be okay. You can get through that. No, what you say is, God wants to help you. Can I pray for you? I'm not supposed to pray at work. Who cares? They, they, they can't tell you not to pray at work. If they can fire you, you don't want that job anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's against the law, by the way, to tell you you can't pray at work anyway. So there's that too. At least now it's the law. If we want to be in the world, bringing it back to what he said at the beginning, but not of the world, then we need God's anointing and you have it. So you need to function in it and you need to seek it daily. Start your day by asking the Holy Spirit to fill you. When I tell you a really, really cool story that just happened, maybe build your faith a little bit. So Saturday night I was praying. We we're going to go to church the next morning, of course. And I was just praying and I don't, I have done this before, but it's been a long time. But I just said, Lord, can you give me any kind of insight about who I'm going to talk to tomorrow or like things I'm going to run into you know, because I've had those before, and there have been times I haven't listened, and I should have, but I said, Lord, do you have any just thoughts for me? And you can ask me about the details later. I'm just going to give you the short version, but the Lord spoke to me saying, you're going to get the chance to pray with somebody, with a woman who feels like and looks like she's got everything together, but inside she is desperately hurting, and she needs a touch from me. I was like, oh, that's really cool. I wrote it down and everything. So I'm like, this is word from the Lord. So First service, I'm up there for prayer. No one came up. Second service for prayer. No one came up. Third service, two bros came up. So there you go. That didn't count. Um, then week of prayer. Oh, week of prayer. In the encounter service, Sunday night, the prayer meeting. I'm driving to church, and dad calls me up and says, Tyler, I'm real tired. Can you lead the service tonight? So yeah, sure. So we're having the, we have the worship service. It goes great. And the very last thing I said, I was five minutes over my time, so I just threw it out there. I said, hey, the Lord gave me this word last night. If, there's, if, this, if that speaks to anybody, just come up and pray with me, okay? I'd love to pray with you. I had five women come up. Every single one of them broke down weeping. As soon as you said that, I knew you were talking about me. How cool is that? That's the anointing of God in your life. You know, well, I believe that the Spirit is just there to, you know, to save us. He did save you, but is that it? Look at the book of Acts. They were walking in the power of the Spirit day by day. That's what God wants to do through you. When you're in, the, in prayer and all of a sudden you just feel impressed to pray for somebody at work or for a family member, and then it turns out, oh man, they needed that. They were in the middle, they almost got in a car accident, or they almost, you know, were sick and almost died, or, you know, she was pregnant and there were complications in that moment, and the Lord prompted you to pray. That's the anointing of the Spirit. Listen to God. God lives in you. So learn to hear His voice. That is how we work to restrain the man of lawlessness until God is done with us. So seek the power of the Holy Spirit daily. How do I receive the Holy Spirit? Well, what did Jesus say? Ask. God's a good father. You know that passage where he says, if you ask for a, a, an egg, will he give you a rock? Or if you ask for bread, will he give him a scorpion, right? That passage is talking about the Holy Spirit. It says, how much more will your good father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He wants to anoint you and continually anoint you. So, Walk in those small ways as God transforms you, and then you can start to transform those who are around you because we do not love the world to participate in it. We love it because they're dying without Jesus, but God has sent us out to be the ones who can bring change. Isn't that awesome?